Uh, my name is Angus. I serve as the other ministry apprentice here, uh, and it's great to see you all. Uh, let's just pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, while we do sing, uh, there are so many things that we cannot tell, so many things we don't understand about you, your glory, your majesty, your mystery. But we thank you and praise you, Father, that there are things where we can say, this I know with certainty because of your revelation to us through your word, through your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray um, that in your word tonight, we would, we would see and we would know that the gathering of your harvest, that we look forward to the day when the savior of the world has come. In your name, amen. A mission always seems like a really big deal. In the movies, the mission is usually the anchoring point of the story. Retrieve the stolen CIA non-official cover list, cast the one ring into the fires of Mount Doom, shrink the moon and steal it with your little yellow minions. And in real life, missions often create landmark moments in history, like the Apollo 11 moon landing or the Navy SEALs capturing and eliminating Osama bin Laden. In this passage, we have another mission that, on the one hand, might seem a little less high-octane, white-knuckle, epic Hollywood material, but nonetheless has worldwide external significance, eternal significance. So in Luke chapter 10, this passage begins after this. So let's recap chapter 9. Chapter 10 comes after chapter 9. So this is after Jesus has been transfigured on the mountain. He has revealed his divine glory to the disciples Peter, James, and John. This is after Jesus has come down from the mountain and healed a demon-possessed boy, giving his disciples a rap on the knuckles for their lack of faith. This is after Jesus has plainly declared he would be delivered into the hands of men, meaning to be executed. This is after his disciples were rejected in a Samaritan village, after Jesus explains that following him could cost homes, families, everything. So in summary, the disciples have been rebuked by Jesus and opposed by the people, and many prospective disciples have been turned away by this massive cost, not to mention the fact that this man, Jesus, has just resolutely set out for Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51. He was going to his death. In worldly terms, this ragtag band of fishermen, fighters, and phonies do not look like your best bet. The wheels could come off at any minute. But Jesus isn't stopping. Instead, he is multiplying the ministry with a mission. If you're taking notes, the first point here is the commission in verses 1 to 11. So in verse 1, Jesus commissions these 72 disciples or messengers. They're called others to show that this number didn't include the 12 disciples that we're more familiar with. And while they were disciples themselves, much more than 12 people followed Jesus. I'll call them the messengers to, view, to avoid confusion with the 12. So scholars through the years have argued excitedly about the significance of that number, 72, or whether it was 70 and what that might have meant. Um, an allusion to Moses' 70 elders uh, on Sinai, or a replacement of the religious establishment, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, showing these messengers and their spiritual authority 
or maybe the apparent understanding that Jews had at the time that there were only 72 nations in the whole world. So sending 72 messengers shows that this message is for the whole world. You can get carried away with the numerology, but I think the most important number in this verse is two by two he sent them. These messengers were not to go alone, but in pairs on their mission to give each other company, support, encouragement, help, and accountability. Where does Jesus send them? He sends them, still in verse one, to every town and place where he was about to go. In verse three, Jesus tells them he's sending them like lambs among wolves. The messengers are at the mercy of the world. This could be a dangerous mission. But they have this one encouragement. Jesus himself was about to go where they were going. Trusting in him, they would go, even like lambs among wolves, two by two, and carry out this mission. These disciples are trailblazing, ice-breaking, preparing the way for the Lord. In verse two, Jesus tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. This analogy hints at the mission of these messengers to gather God's people into him just as the workers gather the harvest, gather the grain. Jesus commonly used these farming analogies and parables to communicate a spiritual truth to his listeners. And here the imagery of the ripe harvest suggests a few things. Firstly, the bounty, the harvest is plentiful. There are many, many, many people who have not yet come to faith in Jesus and begun to follow him, but who will. But the grain doesn't just walk into the barn by itself. Someone has to go out into the harvest field and bring it in. The messengers have to go out and bring them in. Romans 10 explains this to us. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? And just because this says preach doesn't mean it's restricted to pastors and pulpits. Anybody, these messengers, nameless as they were, anybody today can share the gospel with friends, family, colleagues, classmates, neighbors, strangers. Secondly, see in the harvest analogy the urgency it's harvest time, and you don't dally around. Any farmer could tell you that. Even anyone who's watched a TV program about farming can tell you the adrenaline gets high around harvest time. Are they gonna make it? Are they gonna get it all? There's urgency. Thirdly, there's this suggestion of the workload because the laborers are few. Last summer after I graduated and before I started working, I spent a few weekends uh, working in hospitality uh, as a waiter at some weddings. And on our way to one event in East Kilbride, our car carrying three waiters broke down by the side of the road. We're stranded, waiting for green flag. And unfortunately, time waits for no man. It certainly waits for no bride. So the wedding reception began. Canapes and drinks had to go out. The show must go on. And by the time we got there, the team at the venue are red in the face, huffing and puffing, where have you guys been? Because they're working twice as hard to make up for us. I mean, they say that many hands make light work. And so conversely, when the laborers are few, those few have a lot of slack to pick up. 
And as a result, Jesus tells them in verse two and tells us to pray. The NIV that we're reading from translates this as ask, ask the Lord of the harvest. The ESV gets a bit closer with pray earnestly. Earnestly. Pray it like you mean it. This is perhaps one of the most important verses in this passage, certainly for us today. Gospel mission cannot be accomplished without prayer. And why is that? Because of who we pray to. Look again at verse two. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When we pray that prayer, we are praying to the sovereign Lord of all the earth, to whom everything belongs and who deserves every ounce of grain from his harvest field. Nothing of this can be accomplished without him. It's all his. So these messengers are told to go in verse three, and then they get a load of instructions about how to go. Let's consider each of those. Verse four, do not take a purse or bag or sandals. So don't take a little coin pouch or a bag of traveling supplies over your shoulder so that you might provide for yourself. Instead, these messengers are to trust in the Lord for provision, as we'll see later. Not to take sandals means not to take an extra pair of sandals. They're not to go barefoot, but they are to go without the luxury, as it would have been, of a spare pair. And then it says, do not greet anyone on the road. And this isn't an instruction to be rude to people, but a reminder to stay focused. Remember, the harvest is ripe. There's urgency. Greetings in first century Eastern cultures were often very formal, very elaborate, very extensive, and these messengers are told not to waste time on social affairs. And in verse five, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them, and if not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't be too polite to refuse a meal. This is to be part of the Lord's provision for these messengers through their hosts. But it says, stay there, and then at the end of verse seven, don't move around from house to house. Don't make your trip a social occasion and waste more time than you have. The work is urgent. And don't pick and choose which house you're gonna stay in in each town. Don't be a Goldilocks. Oh, this bed's too stiff. Oh, these portions are a little bit too small. Oh, these hosts are just right. No, rather with humility and content, uh, these messengers are not to get caught up on the luxuries, to focus on their mission. Verse eight, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. The food prepared for the messengers in these places, some of them Sumerian and some of them Gentile, might not have been up to scratch with the Jewish religious customs and ritual cleanliness. Jesus tells them not to fuss. That's not as important as the mission at hand. Verse nine gives us the mission at hand. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Proclaim the kingdom of God. This has been Jesus' mission all throughout Luke. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor in the synagogue in his hometown in chapter four. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom all around the towns in chapter eight. Commissioning his 12 disciples to go and do the same in the beginning of chapter nine. And now the 72 here, the mission's expanding. First Jesus, then the 12, now the 72. 
more and more people are being commissioned to share the good news. The Lord of the harvest is sending more workers into his field. And Jesus gives these messengers authority to do these healings, which would be a physical demonstration of the kingdom of God coming near. So follow all these instructions, and it should be smooth sailing, you might think. But of course, remember verse 3, the messengers are going out as lambs among wolves. Wolves don't always want to hear what a lamb has to say. They would face rejection, as Jesus tells them in verse 10 and 11. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Wiping the dust off their feet is a sign of dissociation with that place, removing every last grain of it now that they've been rejected. And the messengers are to say, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now notice the difference between what they say to the two kinds of town. One kind of town accepts them and one town rejects them. So to the town that accepts them, in verse nine, they say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. To the town that rejects them, in verse 11, they say, the kingdom of God has come near. Kingdom of God comes near to both, but it comes to you, to those who accept the message only. So we clearly have these two options for any town, any place, any person who hears the message of the kingdom of God coming near, the good news of Jesus. Do you accept or do you reject? The next part of this passage then describes woe on those who reject. Verses 12 to 16. The messengers can take courage and know that no matter how they're received, their mission is complete. The kingdom of God has come near. They've proclaimed the good news so that those who've heard them will know with certainty who Jesus is and what he's doing. But Jesus' heart is heavy for those places that reject the messengers. Because he says, end of verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom was a city that was destroyed by the wrath of God completely because of the sins of its people. Genesis 19 describes this. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those who lived in those cities. Sodom's then used throughout the Bible as this ultimate symbol of God's judgment. And yet, Jesus says, even this town that has been completely ruined by the judging wrath of God will not be as worse off as these places that reject his message. These places, unlike Sodom, have heard and seen the good news of Jesus and still reject him. Once you've heard the gospel, just like these messengers are to say in verse 11, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Everything you need to know to put faith in Jesus has come near, it's been said. And take care, as Jesus says, it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom than for those who hear his message and reject it. We'll see why that is in a few verses. But in the meantime, this soliloquy for these places brings Jesus to talk about Chorazin and Bethsaida in verse 13. Jesus and his followers have been ministering in these places already, and clearly they've been rejected 
Jesus says, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Here's two more cities famed for their destruction in the Old Testament. We read about Tyre and Sidon in Ezekiel 28. Let me just read a bit of that for context. Ezekiel 28, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Tyre. Because you think you're wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I'm a god in the presence of those who kill you? And the Lord says to Sidon, I am against you, Sidon, and among you I will display my glory. You will know that I am the Lord when I inflict punishment on you, and within you am proved to be holy. I will send a plague upon you and make blood flow in your streets. The slain will fall within you with the sword against you on every side. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So even these proud cities, it talks about Tyre thinking that it's like a god. Even these cities would have been brought to repentance in sackcloth and ashes, Jesus says, if they had seen him. And yet, Chorazin and Bethsaida, who did see him, still refuse, still turn their backs, still stand opposed, and Jesus proclaims this woe on those towns. It's not a cry of anger or vengeance, but of remorse. She says, alas, Jesus wishes that this wasn't the case. And similarly, Capernaum, in the next verse, where Jesus administered extensively has broadly rejected him. Jesus asks, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Hades being the underworld. Going from heaven to the underworld shows us the depth and the magnitude of how far these places fall having rejected the message of Jesus. Why are they condemned like this? Look at verse 16. Whoever listens to you, the messengers, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. To reject the message is not only to reject the messengers, not only to disagree with their point of view, to think their preaching is less than totally engaging, to think there's probably a better message out there for you somewhere, to think I'd be better off if I had my own message for me, no, to reject the message is to reject Jesus himself. And to reject Jesus is to reject his father, his father, God. Luke has been crystal clear about this throughout his gospel. In chapter three, when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven booms out, you are my son whom I love. Rejecting this message, the good news of the kingdom of God, means rejecting the sovereign Lord of the universe the great I am, the almighty creator, the good and just judge. And like Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, who were destroyed, like Capernaum, who will be brought down to Hades, we see the severity and finality of that rejection, judgment, destruction, and death. And this judgment and the woes on those rejected, who reject is sharply contrasted to those who accept. It's third point in this passage, rejoicing for those who accept the message in verses 17 to 24. When the messengers return, they seem to be in good spirits. Maybe a lot of people did accept their message. Maybe they were well-fed. And they come rejoicing, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
Jesus didn't explain that this would happen to them when he commissioned them. He didn't send them saying, cast out demons. They're excited about this extra thing that they've been able to do. Jesus tells his messengers, though they have been given this great authority, verse 19, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Jesus tells them that they've been granted this amazing protection. Nothing will harm you. But there's only one thing to rejoice in, that their names are written in heaven. Verse 20. As in, written in God's book of life, the Revelation describes the names of every follower of Jesus who will inherit eternal life. This above all else is the thing that Christians should rejoice in. As we rejoice, let's remember why we can rejoice, how the names of wretched sinners like us, rebels against God, end up written in heaven. We didn't put it there ourselves. It's because of Jesus. Because of his saving work on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many, becoming obedient to death, so that any who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is why Jesus' followers rejoice. And when they return, explaining what's happened, Jesus tells them what he saw. Verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is maybe a little confusing until you go back to the Greek that Luke wrote in and see Jesus saying, I was watching. Jesus isn't talking about anything that happened way back at the beginning or that will happen way on at the end of time. I was watching as these messengers went out and spread the gospel, this good news of Jesus, salvation for those who trust in him. Jesus was watching Satan fall, like lightning falls from heaven, like that. The enemy's kingdom falls as God's kingdom advances. And this is still true today. As Christians put on the full armor of God, pick up the sword of the word of God, as we share Jesus with those around us, we're fighting a great spiritual battle. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When God's kingdom advances, it's not an oppressive war of conquest. It's not annexation by a land-grabbing tyrant. Christian soldiers bringing forth the gospel fight a battle for the liberation of captives for the rescuing of lost souls, and for the reclaiming of what rightly belongs to God, his children. So for this reason, that the kingdom advances and that these messengers have their names written in heaven, for this reason alone, they rejoice. And then in verse 21, for the only time in all four gospels, Jesus rejoices. Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit and praised the Father because his messengers have gone out and completed their mission. They have proclaimed the kingdom of God. Jesus rejoices when broken sinners, blind darkness dwellers, shepherdless sheep hear the good news. This Jesus, the Son of the Most High, cares so much about each and every person that when they hear the good news about him, he rejoices. He rejoices praising his father that the kingdom of God comes to the little children, not to the wise and the learned. Do you remember Tyre and Sidon who thought itself wise? 
Capernaum who thought it would be lifted up to the heavens. This upside down kingdom manifesto of Jesus's that we've seen all throughout Luke's gospel is nailed home here. God humbles the pride and exalts the humble. The rich will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It will be the poor, the meek, and the lowly. Jesus didn't come to call those who think they are righteous, looking down their nose at the people around them. He came to call sinners to repentance. Those who know that they're lost, poor, drowning, helpless. And that demands a bit of reflection on our part. Do we think we've got it all together? Really? Or do we need to wake up and see that without Jesus, we have nothing? We're lost and helpless, and we need a savior. And this savior is who he is because of the intimacy of his relationship with the father that he describes in verse 21. Pardon me, verse 22. No one knows who the son is except the father, and no one knows who the father is except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He does what he does. He saves sinners because the only people who know the father are those whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. There's no way for us to earn this revelation of God, no way for us to write our names in heaven by ourselves, no way to pay or pray or parlay your way into his favor. It's humbling to know that the only reason any of us have heard the gospel and know anything about God is that Jesus has chosen to reveal it to us. What a gift of grace is Jesus, the Redeemer. And finally, Jesus speaks privately to the 12 disciples in verse 23 and encourages them further. They should rejoice in what they're hearing and seeing as many prophets and kings, Moses, Elijah, David, Isaiah, Solomon, Joshua, Hezekiah, these major human characters of the Old Testament, those with intimate relationships with God who were entrusted with his most important missions, heroes of the Jewish faith and nations, all long to see what you see and did not. What an honor it must have been for those disciples of the day to walk with the Lord in the flesh. But we rejoice today, and we can also call our eyes and ears blessed every time we hear his words, not as an audible voice from his lips, but in the reading, singing, teaching, and preaching of the Bible. And we see his work not in witnessing miracle healings or water walkings or thousands feedings, though those are so amazing to read about, we see his work, just as we've already said, when sinners hear the gospel. When people repent and believe, put their faith in him, pass through the waters of baptism and become members of the family of God. When the family of God shares in the Lord's Supper, as we did this morning, that is his work in action. That is his kingdom advancing. And that is his mission going according to plan. So what do we do with this today, 21st century readers? What does it mean for us? Well, if you're here tonight, or if you're watching online, wherever and whenever you are, and you don't know Jesus, you wouldn't say you're a Christian. You don't think this is for you. Can I please urge you to think again? To think about the way Jesus in this passage presents the response, the result of our response to him. Like when he asked his disciples in chapter nine, the question for all of us 
And I, I really think it is the question for all of us. Jesus says, who do you say I am? It's clear in this passage there's two options. You accept or you reject. And it's clear that those who reject Jesus reject God. To reject God is to reject the grace, goodness, love, and forgiveness of the cross. The only thing that can save us from the punishment of sin, which is death. It's clear here that to accept Jesus, to accept this amazing sacrifice is to have cause to rejoice. So please think carefully which one you choose. And for those of us who are Christians, while we might wish that we are part of those nameless 72, that we got to do these amazing things, that we got to walk with the Lord in the flesh, let's remember that these instructions aren't directly for us. This isn't a, a copy-paste itinerary for 21st century mission. We go out under something even greater, the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded, knowing that he is with us always. But I do think there are some timeless points in this passage. Not to fuss over luxury and social success as we spread the gospel. To be grateful for those who host or support us. To go with urgency. To prioritize partnership in the mission. Remember, the messengers went two by two. Most importantly, to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into his field. Let's pray for more gospel people, more evangelists, more pastors, more gospel workers. We know how desperately our own Bonnie Scotland needs these. But of course, let's pray for more evangelists, more gospel people all around the world. Let's pray for our cross-cultural workers sent from Charlotte Chapel who are sharing the love of God with refugees in Edinburgh who are translating the words of God into the unreached languages. If you don't know how to pray for our cross-cultural workers, pick up the Go Pray magazine. It's in the foyer. There's so many ministries and missions that do need our prayer. Let's pray for more workers in the field. And as the band come up, let me emphasize, finally, brothers and sisters, our rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. Not so much that we take our eyes off what's happening right now. We have a job to do in this harvest field. And that's what we're about to sing about. But we know and we look forward to the day when the Lord calls us home and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We rejoice in our salvation. If you don't know it, stick around, ask someone about it, ask me, we've got tea and coffee. But those of us who know it, we rejoice in our salvation until he comes. Let's stand and sing.